The Old Testament reading is from Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation, desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Jessica, for reading like half the book of Daniel. Um, we printed it for you uh, because no one knows where Daniel is in their Bible. So you can, if you're looking to learn to pray, um, it's printed there. Take it home. Pray through it uh, this week. It'll be a great um, experience, I'm sure. And that's our goal during this series. The great prayers of the Bible is not just to read them, not just to know they're there, or not just to even reflect upon them, but to learn to pray. 
and to proactively engage these scriptures beyond just what we're doing this morning. So I'm going to make a few comments. Uh, This is a sermon, after all, on uh, this confession in Daniel uh, chapter 9. But it's more to encourage all of us together to pray uh, when we're apart as well. So let's begin as we look at this confession in Daniel chapter 9 by praying. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would be with us, that your presence would be known and felt and heard and witnessed, and Lord, that the wandering would find their way home, that the hurting would find healing, that the forgotten would find a friend in you. Father, that the skeptical would find their answers in this time. Father, for all of us, that we would take a step toward you as you have done in this passage and in your word and in the person of Jesus as you have stepped into our story. I pray that we would respond with faith and with our lives, and we pray that we would do that as individuals as well as as a community. Make us whole, make us hungry for you, and Father, let us be a praying, confessing people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In the 1990s, Dr. James Pennebaker is a professor of psychology at the University of Texas in Austin, and he conducted a set of experiments in which research subjects were asked to speak into a tape recorder, and they were given two choices. They could either talk, and they had to talk for 20 minutes about mundane daily experiences, or they could choose to talk about past traumas, and quite a choice. Surprisingly, many chose to talk about past traumas and hurts and griefs. And unsurprisingly, the group that confessed these past traumas reported feeling upset during the confession, and some even wept. They talked about accidents, abuse. They talked about grief. They talked about personal failure. But what was interesting is that after that initial time of distress, the participants felt better. Physically, they felt better. Their systolic blood pressure, which was elevated during the confession, actually was lower than pre-experiment, and it stayed lower. Some even experienced less illnesses in the following six months because they tracked these participants, and they reported going to and needing to go to the doctor less over the next six months, all based upon that one isolated experiment. And the more that they disclosed, the more honest they were, the greater the effect on their personal health. Pennebaker writes, writing about traumatic experiences produces improvements in immune function, and translating experiences into words forces some kind of structure upon the experiences themselves. Our secrets keep us sick, as they like to say, NAA. Our secrets keep us sick, physically, literally. And unconfessed sin keeps us isolated. It keeps us alone. It keeps us unhealthy physically, emotionally, spiritually. Or as the Bible describes it, it keeps us in exile, away from ourselves and away from the God who made us. Daniel is a book, like many of the others that we've been looking at during this series, that is about exile. And if you've ever tried to read 
Daniel, you probably read half of it because the first half, the first six chapters, is mostly narrative, and it's a pretty gripping story. That's where you read about Daniel and the lion's den, and you read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and them standing up to King Nebuchadnezzar and refusing to bow down to Babylonian gods and being thrown into the fiery furnace. It it's, reads like an adventure story, a good novel. And in the Hebrew Bible, the way that the Bible is ordered, Daniel is considered ketuvim, that is, writings, general writings. But in the Christian Bible, it's considered prophecy, a prophetic book. Because after chapter 6, after that really gripping story, it's six chapters full of visions and strange numbers and dreams that Daniel has and dreams that others have and full of imagery and metaphor. And it's really difficult, frankly, to follow and to know what's going on. Now, I've toyed with the idea of preaching a series called Daniel Beyond the Lion's Den, where we get into that, but I'm not quite brave enough to do that yet. But maybe with some study, we'll try and tackle that. But we have indeed talked about prophets a lot during this series, and they spoke to people in exile. And this is a hugely important historical period for the Bible, because from about the 6th century B.C. through Alexander the Great, the God's people find themselves in slavery. They were ruled by the Persians, and then before that, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And this long, real historical exile becomes more than that. It becomes not just a historical experience, but it becomes a metaphor for life apart from God. This is what the experience of choosing to go your own way and choosing to walk away from God, this is what it is actually like. This is a spiritual metaphor. And one of the questions, in fact, the big question, the $64,000 question that all of these prophets try to answer is, why? How can we as God's chosen people be in exile? How can we be enslaved? And the very simple, unnuanced answer is, you blew it. (laughs) You blew it. You sinned repeatedly and conspicuously and boldly, and God told you this was happening, and you did it anyway. So here we are, and what do we do about this? How do we live as God's people in exile? But the prophets not only answer why, but now what? What do we do about it. When you find yourself in exile, literally, metaphorically, spiritually, what do you do? And to answer that, we unfortunately have to talk about sin. And it's a word that nobody likes, that it's kind of gone out of fashion, but it's a concept that all of us think about. It might not be a term that you like, but we still don't we have this haunting sense that something is wrong with us? Something is broken inside of us. Something is malformed and malfunctioning. Maybe we've abandoned those ancient categories, yet we still have this profound sense, don't we, that we're being examined, that someone is looking in, and that no one can see the real us and still accept us. And so we have all of these coping mechanisms, all of these ways that we hide, all of these masks that we wear because we have this deep and sad feeling 
that we've got to hide our true selves. And this is shame, really. Notice verse 7. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered, covered with shame. Isn't Daniel talking about how we oftentimes feel that we're not fully acceptable? We're not sure what the measurement is. We're not sure what the standard is. And maybe it changes hour to hour or day by day. But we don't feel like we're quite measuring up. And so we seek to prove ourselves over and over that we're worthy, that we're lovable, that we're valuable. And we spend a great deal of time exercising that. Few people have talked about this better than John Paul Sartre, who ironically is an atheist, but in being in nothingness, he sets up this scenario, and he says, imagine yourself in a room, and you notice a keyhole on the wall, and there's a light coming through it. So you get down, and you look through the keyhole, and what you see is you see people scurrying about and going about their daily lives, and you have access to watch them and observe them, and they don't know that you're watching them. And he says there's something incredibly empowering and, yes, satisfying about being able to watch people, and they don't know that they're being watched. I googled this last night, would you rather be able to fly or be invisible? It's like the classic would-you-rather question, and there's literally thousands of hits of people weighing in, and it's shocking how many answer invisibility. You can fly or you can be creepy. Which one do you choose? I'll take door number two. I want to be invisible so I can observe people in their natural habitat. Well, Sartre sets up this illustration that you can see them, but they can't see you, and it gives you this godlike power, an invisibility cloak. But then you're in the same room, and you hear a noise behind you, and you turn around, and you see what? Another keyhole. And you see someone is watching you. You realize you're no longer the unseen seer. And what Sartre says, of course, that the first thing is empowering, but he says, interestingly, that being watched is very dehumanizing. For someone to have total access, for someone to know what you're doing and how you're living, the decisions that you're making, and you have no control to filter that out, Sartre says, is dehumanizing. Now, what's fascinating is that Sartre is an existentialist. He's an atheist. He doesn't believe in moral absolutes, that there is a universal norm for everyone to live by. There's nothing ultimate. And yet, he says it's still endemic to every single one of us to feel this experience of shame when we know that people are looking and we can't control what they're seeing. We want to cover. We want to hide. We want to cover over that keyhole and say, no, you cannot see me under these conditions, only under the conditions over which I have control. So maybe you're here this morning and like Sartre, you don't believe that anyone's ultimately looking. The universe looks on with indifference. But do you sometimes work yourself into a state of mental frenzy When you get into an argument with someone, when someone's disappointed in you, especially someone close to you, when someone criticizes your work and you can't leave that feeling, 
Do you believe that no one is ultimately looking on, but yet still at 30, 40, 50 years old, you're still desperately afraid of what your parents think? No one is ultimately looking on. The universe is indifferent, but you stay at work far too long because if you give up, if you go home early, your reputation will be ruined. Why do we do this if there's no ultimate judge? And what about those of us who would call ourselves Christians and say, we believe in grace and yet do the very same things and have the same anxiety and experience the same kind of shame? We're choosing to try and measure up to a constantly shifting standard. But you see, even if that's true, even if there is no one looking on, we don't live up to our own standards. We're never the person even we aspire to be in our own little universe. We're never the person that we claim to be constantly. Never. And that means And Sartre says this, that every one of us has a problem with guilt and shame, even the atheist, even existentialists. So even if we aren't convinced that the Bible is true and that what lies at the root of it is actually what the Bible calls sin, if we're not convinced of that, we don't even even, uh, fulfill our own standards. Franz Kafka, who had an influence on Sartre, says the state we find ourselves in today is we feel sinful, quite independent of guilt. In other words, I don't believe in heaven or hell. I don't believe in a moral law. I don't believe in an ultimate judge. I don't believe in sin. This is John Lennon's Imagine, right? And yet, in your own life, in our lives, there's always this voice that's saying you're about to be found out. You're a failure you're a fool, you're a nobody. Where is this voice coming from if there's no such thing as ultimate law, as sin? Deep down, as I talked about as we began, we have this sense that something's wrong. Something's wrong with me, and I've got to hide. And it doesn't matter what culture we live in, what century we live in, that's true just of the human experience, and we are all desperately looking for a solution to this. Now, the Bible talks about this situation in terms of creation, fall, and redemption. That's the salvation story, the thread that's throughout the Bible, that humanity hasn't just failed to keep its own system of morality, whether that's communitarian or whether that's individual, but it has completely turned in on itself and is chosen to walk away from God, away from its Creator. And what we need is more than just honesty and self-critique and therapy, though all of those things are incredibly helpful and can be critical to our growth as people. But what we need, and what Daniel says, we need redemption. We need salvation. Because Daniel says, verse 4, we are measured. We are measured by the great an awesome God, measured by something external to us. Man, we hate that. We recoil at that. I want to live by my own decisions, my own standards. I want to have autonomy. And Daniel says, no, we are measured by the great and awesome God. And so be careful wherever we are this morning. Be careful of meeting God 
Because if you're encountering Him as He really is, your reference point, your vantage point is taken out of you internally and it's made external. It's no longer how you're measuring up to your own standards or that of your spouse or your friends, of your co-workers, but it is the God who is perfection, the God who is whole, the God who is holy, the God who the Apostle John says is light, and in Him there is no darkness. And so Christian liturgy from the very beginning of this story, from ancient times, has had a segment of worship where Christians choose to reorient themselves to that external measurement, where they confess the distance between who we are in ourselves, all of the brokenness that resides in us, what Dorothy Sayers calls the deep inner dislocation of the soul, where we confess that and how far it is from that awesome, holy God, the God who is light. And that's scary. If that's true, and that's our task in confession, well, that's profoundly dangerous. And it takes courage. It takes bravery. Because what we're doing is we're having to own up to that deep inner dislocation of the soul and say it actually exists. It's not a fabrication. I'm not who I want to be. I'm not who others think I am. And I'm also certainly not the holy and awesome God. And so what do we do? Instead of owning up to the ways that we have lived harmfully towards others, towards ourselves, and walked away from God as we avoid it, we choose to not confess or to confess sort of around the edges, the things that don't really matter, the things that everyone does. And it's actually, hear this, it's this avoidance of confession. It's this avoidance of grace that the Bible calls sin. Listen to verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and your laws. That's what we would typically expect, right? Because when we hear this, we hear, well, you've broken the rules. Now go stand in the corner. You haven't measured up, and so now God is upset with you. But notice verse 9. He doesn't stop there. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. We have rebelled against Him. We rebelled against Him. His commands and His laws, you see, are relational. They're not arbitrary. They're covenantal, like marriage vows. His commands and His laws, what we would call the covenant, they aren't the rule book for staying out of trouble, but they're the pathways to relationship. Did you hear that? Commands, rules, law in the Bible, they're not the rule book for staying out of trouble, but they're the pathway into relationship with God. Breaking the law is representative then of something far more fundamental. The rebellion isn't first that you've broken the law, you have broken the rule, but that we haven't loved God and that we have broken the relationship and the channels by which we relate to Him. All loving parents provide guardrails 
for their children. And as a parent of four children, I know this is difficult sometimes because we want relationship with them, we want openness, but we also want their safety, and we want to provide a pathway for them to flourish. And all of us as parents tend to swing on this pendulum between being overly permissive on one end or overly protective, or as kids would talk about it, the fun parent or the strict parent. And we kind of go between. I know in my experience that's true. But what good parents try to do is to try to chart out a third way between those that holds those intention where the house rules are important and they're not arbitrary. They're meant to lead to flourishing, to peace, to safety, towards healthy relationships between the child and the parent. So they have to be taken seriously. But if the child breaks them, a wise parent doesn't say, well, now you've done it. Now we're going to really turn the heat on. You're going to feel my wrath. Being overly strict and punitive can lead to children obeying, but obeying out of fear, obeying to avoid our disappointment, avoid our wrath. So rules without love. But the opposite error is being overly permissive. We can't control them. They're going to do the things that all their friends do, and we don't want to threaten the relationship. We want to have harmony, and so we don't create guardrails. And that's love without rules. Most children can see through both. The rules without love are the love without rules. That's not what children want. That's not what we want as parents. That's not what God wants from His people. The rules are important, God says, because I love you. And if we choose to walk away from the law, we have first chosen to walk away from grace. We've first chosen to walk away from the love of God, you see. And what God says is that the rules are important because I love you. And if you break them, He will not reject you. But at the same time, there are consequences. There are consequences to all of our decisions. We see this in our everyday life. We see this in parenting, and we must see this in our relationship with God. And this is what God did with the nation of Israel. This is why we're here in Daniel. They had walked away from God, from the relationship so flagrantly that God the Father allowed them to experience the weight of their decisions. And God's people were then overrun by foreign armies. They were taken into exile. It seems kind of severe, right? But what we have to understand is that there are hundreds of years of prophecy and preaching and teaching. This is what it means to be. And they had seen grace over and over and over and still flagrantly walked away. But we also have to remember is that even though they were in exile, the promise was always there. Return to me, and I will heal the relationship. And Daniel knows this, and he grounds his prayer of confession in God's character. Verse 9, the Lord our God is merciful, as we read, and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against Him. Even though 
So what is most foundational to this relationship? Is it my performance and my fulfilling my duty and how I'm doing, or is it the promises of God? And that's what Daniel is appealing to, the promises and the nature of God Himself. He is merciful. In His character, He is forgiving. And He will be faithful even though we have rebelled against Him. Creation, fall, redemption. What Daniel was getting the people to get to, what he was getting to himself in the context of the leader was salvation. Over and over and over. That's the story of God's people in the Bible. It's a salvation-defined story. And in, in a salvation-defined story, sin is not diminished. If anything, we're more aware of it, right? But it's no longer definitive. In a salvation-defined story, sin is not diminished. We're more aware of it. It's just no longer definitive. Salvation is definitive. God's promises are definitive. God's character is definitive. And what is the key? What puts you into that story? It's confession. It's need. Daniel's people needed rescue from exile, literal rescue. But the prophets, as I said, used this exile as a metaphor for a deeper, a spiritual exile from which all of us need rescue. The exile, of course, of sin. And this is the creation fall into sin, now redemption, that God offers this invitation to all of us to come back. No matter what our sin is, it doesn't define us. It's not definitive in our story. What is definitive is the offer of salvation. The way out of exile, friends, is through the one who willingly experienced exile on our behalf, Jesus the Christ. And because of Him, God doesn't look at our lives through a keyhole, but He looks at us through a cross, and it makes all the difference. It's not a keyhole through which we're being looked at and observed and measured by God, but it is through the cross of Christ. And so all of those things that you think you're hiding, they're open secrets to God. He's seen them all, but through confession, through expressing our need, they are no longer definitive. Salvation is definitive. His salvation. So would you take hold of it? Let's pray. God, you tell us that we need rescue. We need salvation, but we don't like that idea. We don't want to be helpless. We don't want to put our lives ultimately in someone else's hands, even yours. And so we confess that the biggest block this morning that most of us have isn't what we've done. It's not the sins that we've committed, but it's our unwillingness to confess. It's our unwillingness to ask for forgiveness. It's our walking away and rejecting grace. Father, help us to turn, help us to repent so that we can receive grace, so that we can receive healing. Would you empower that this morning in all of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.